Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Adrian Craig. Let me pray. Father, we uh, want that you will give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and minds to comprehend the magnitude of your grace. Speak to us while every other voice is hushed. In silence, we wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. No uh, seismographic device could measure uh, the magnitude of the quake. The Richter scale ran out of graduations. Haiti and Tohoku, the Japanese quake, are only backyard rumbles compared to this one. My verse, by way of introduction, is in the last book of the Bible, chapter 16 and verse 18. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 18. And the text says, Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. Let's just imagine what's happening here. The earth heaves and swells like the waves of an ocean that's in giant swell. There are cracks that run for kilometres in the ground. Nature's out of control. It's gone crazy. There are brilliant flashes of lightning making laser flashes or welding arcs look like torchlight. Or the pyrotechnic display that you've just witnessed at the Opera House on New Year's Eve look like a backyard cracker night. The thunder rumbles like the roar of 10,000 jumbos on takeoff, or maybe A380s. It splits the air like a thousand super hornets, or if you're not up to date, F111s breaking the sound barrier. The atmosphere is super, super, super electrically charged. I read on in the text with you, and it says in verse 19, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed and God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the few of his wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. So goodbye Kosciuszko. Goodbye Great Divide. Goodbye the Warren Bungles. And anybody from Tasmania, bad news for you. It's gone. Stradbroke, the Witch Sundays, and Fraser Island, according to the text, the islands disappear, swallowed up by the ocean depths. And the seaports of the world, the trade centers of the globe, are destroyed by giant tsunamis, killer waves that come from the bursting of the ocean floor. There is flotsam and there is jetsam everywhere, debris like matchwood. The great metropolises and the megapolises with their monuments of steel and cement and stone, multi-storied shrines of human ingenuity and prowess, 
man-made shrines of glass are blown away like strands of shredded office stationery. Hmm. It's September 11. Hear me this morning, but it's everywhere. This earth long infected with the deadliest of all viruses heaves and squirms and wriggles struggling to rid itself of its 6,000-year-old disease that has deformed us and taken away our life. Triple O is jammed. SES becomes SOS. And Simon's sirens sound the warning of disaster, which even the best disaster services are powerless to remedy. The world is one huge bedlam, one cacophony of sirens and thunder and cracking earth and pounding sea. And according to the last text of the chapter, great giant hailstones of 45 kgs pounding the debris of a planet gone mad. Insane, ravaging out of control. Disaster services roam aimlessly, hoping to help. Rescue helicopters hover, not knowing where to go or how to help. Everywhere is heard the wailing of humanity in trauma, in pain. In this upheaval, Jail cells are split open, and God's children, long incarcerated, imprisoned for their belief, hallelujah, are given freedom. In the east appears a small black cloud, half the size of a man's hand. The devotees of the deliverer, the redeemed, you and I know what it means. God's people look for redemption and watch keenly the cloud. They know the meaning of the cloud as it gets closer and closer and brighter and brighter and turns brilliant white and fills the heavens from the north to the south. Are you with me this morning? From the east to the west. It's global coverage. Forget about primetime viewing and Channel 9. The cloud is alive. 10,000 times 10,000 of angels on a rescue mission to release the hostages, making music as they move, melody, eight-part harmony, contrasting with the bedlam and the cacophony of a convulsed world below. The angels turn the heavens into brilliant white, far greater than the noonday sun. The air is saturated with the praise of the angels and God's children join in in echoing the chorus. The text says, Habakkuk says, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. No Fleet Street journalist or foreign correspondent can make words to describe the climax of history. Microsoft Word will not help you to script a description of the takeoff. The whole event is beyond words. And the text says, His splendor was like the sunrise. And as the cloud, a massive cloud gets closer and closer, the text says, Revelation 1 verse 7 says, And every eye shall see him. And there he is, the King of kings, the King of glory. No crown of thorns to mar that sacred brow. Eyes like blazing fire and a face of dazzling splendor outshining the brilliance of the noonday sun. 
This is the king of kings, my king and your king, who's king over all the universe. He first releases the imprisoned subjects. Those who have been held captive in the prison house of death Wake up is the message to the dead centers of the earth. The trumpet sounds the alarm. And he says to the sleepers, morning has come. Wake up. And life bursts forth. Hallelujah. Not Lazarus, not Jairus' daughter, but all who believe receive resurrection and life. And they come. And they come, and they come from every nation and kindred and tribe and people and dialect and clan and village and family. The Scots and the Welsh and the Irish are there from the UK. They come from Asia, the Thai and the Taiwanese and the Kaima and the Tagalogs from the Philippines. They're there too, and the Laotians are there. They come from the subcontinent. The Singhalese and the Tamils come from Sri Lanka, and the Punjabis from Pakistani are there. And they come from Africa. They come from Africa. The Hutus and the Tutsis and the Zulus. They come from Zambia and they come from Zimbabwe. Come on now. They come from Romania. They come from the Ukraine. They come from Scandinavia, the Finns and the Swedes and the Norwegians. Then I see some Arabs and some Jews and some Eskimos. We'll have to give them a little bit of time to get acclimatized. And they come from the Caribbean. They come from Jamaica. They come from St. Lucia. They come from Trinidad. They come from Barbados. And I see some Aboriginals there from Aussie land. And I see some Maoris from Aotearoa. And they come from Micronesia. They come from Melanesia. And they come from Polynesia. Hmm. You're all quiet out there. Oh, Jesus, what a day that will be. Mothers robbed of babies, get them back. Husbands robbed of wives and wives robbed of husbands are reunited. Thank you, Jesus. Sisters robbed of brothers and brothers robbed of sisters are together again. And all rise. And all rise with the freshness and the vitality of youth. Come on, you gray heads. Humanity robbed of its dignity and defaced and deformed by disease now sparkles with the freshness of a teen. I can't wait. They're not even 10 hours weekly at Curves or Projo's Workout or Jenny Craig can give you. And I see Adam. I see Adam standing tall among the acres of the risen, towering above the rest, majestic in form and feature, twice my height, a little less in height than Jesus. He's the true man. He's the true man showing what's happened to us, how sin has degenerated us and discounted us. And the living righteous rendezvous in the air with the raised righteous an instant in an instant Thank you, Jesus. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, we are all changed and clothed with deathlessness. We're given a, no, a new nature. No longer will we have a nature that drags us down and provides a launch pad for sin. And all the righteous soar upwards like a never-ending center point ride or a, vertic- or a hawk harrier 
on vertical takeoff. The heavens, the heavens are loaded with humanity. And they come from every generation and each has a story to tell. The king says, your king and my king said, I go to prepare a place for you, Adrian, that you may be with me where I am. Don't be worried. I will come again. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. You men of Galilee, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus you have seen go into heaven will so come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. I go, said Jesus. I go, and I will come to get you, to take you to a place that I prepared for you. And what a place. What a place. A tree of life with its monthly crop of mangoes. unspeckled and unmarked that would make even the Kensington Prides bow. <laughs> the water there, streams that are as clear as crystal, not clouded with the pollutants and the effluent, like the Para and the Yarra, and the Hawkesbury and the Hunter and the Macquarie, you name it. You can see to the base. There are wide-spreading plains that slope into hills of grandeur, the gardens of flowers, a mosaic of gorgeous panorama of colour. And the aroma, you've never sniffed anything like this before. The fields of living grain, the forests are packed with trees. The beasts of the field are there all together and at peace. There's no lion or ravenous wolf stalking to kill. And the text says, and they shall not hurt nor destroy. Thank you, Jesus. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. The lamb and the lion will be together. Are you with me this morning? You're pretty quiet out there. And a little child shall lead them. Thank you, Jesus. There's a table there. There's a table set for a banquet. It's the marriage meal of the bride and the bridegroom. The table, according to the lady, you believe in the lady here who wrote to the church? Amen. Thank you. The table is of pure silver. Hmm. And it's kilometers long. And you can see to the end of the table, and so can I, because we all have telescopic vision and microscopic vision. And the meal caters for all. There are almonds and mangoes and grapes and watermelon and kiwi fruit for the New Zealanders <laughs> and bowen mangoes for the North Queenslanders and rice for the Asians <laughs> and corn for the Peruvians and Rhodian chapati and dal for the Indians and tortilla for the Mexicans couscous for the Algerians Taro for the Fijians. Sweet potato for a PNG. Cow cow 
Pastor and Tamara for you know who. Tamatama for the Bougainvillians and Mussy Mussy for the Solomon Islanders and Heavenly Mealy Meal or Sadza for the Zimbabweans, Zimbabweans, Luau for the Samoans. And the music goes on and on. The anthem of heaven is the song of Moses and the Lamb continually sung by the united voices of heaven's choir, accompanied by the countless peace orchestra, positioned on the victory dais of the sea of glass. And the chorus goes up. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. You alone are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honour and strength. But beloved, are you still listening? Beloved, heaven is a myth if indeed Jesus is not there. The lady wrote the church says, the definition of heaven is the presence of Jesus. Heaven is a ceaseless approaching to God through Jesus Christ. I go to prepare a place for you that you may be with me, the king of the universe, that where I am you may be also. And Revelation 21 verse 3 says, The dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself shall be with them. Redemption. Redemption realized is Eden again, like we were discussing this morning. Being in the presence of the Trinity. It's the ultimate purpose of redemption. But Jesus said, let me warn you, watch, watch, watch. If the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was going to come, he would have been on duty and caught him. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins. They all went to sleep. And the message is if you're going to go to sleep, make sure you're ready to wake up. And Jesus ended the parable by saying, keep watch because Adrian, you don't know the day or the hour. The master of the servant will come in a day when you do not expect him. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that ascend unto you, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens, but behold, your health is left unto you desolate. Ichabod, the glory is departed. The great hope of this church that you and I are honoured to be members of, the great hope of this church is that one day the skies will open and one day, not too very soon, Jesus will come to take us home to glory, to be with him throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. The genius of Adventism, the genius of Adventism is we know there is a terminus. Back in the 19th century when men and women immersed themselves in the study of the book of Revelation, which we ought to do, and we are doing, but we need to do more of it. They came to the deep conviction that in Jesus indeed lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring because Jesus is coming again. As 1844 was approaching, people sought to make all their wrongs right, to confess their misdeeds. Money was sent to government to clear their debts. The most deep heart searching took place and people sought to remove their affections from things that were worldly and materialistic. 
People ask the most important question in the universe. What must I do to be saved? The hearts of parents were turned to their children and children to their parents and everywhere were souls in deep anguish pleading with God as did Jacob at the brook Chabbok wrestling all night praying for assurance of sins pardoned and the conversion of their friends and their neighbours. We as Adventists with no arrogance, but we as Adventists hold this non-negotiable tenet of belief. Lift up a trumpet and loud let it ring because Jesus is coming again in spite of what the prognosticators of negativity say. He is coming. He's even at the door. The most dangerous thing, the most dangerous thing about being an Adventist is being an Adventist. Now, come on now, talk sense. No, I'll say it again. The most dangerous thing about being an Adventist is just that. We know so much, we've been waiting so long, and we lose the ability to wait. It was Rabbi Mark Pannenbaum who said to the Jewish people, the greatest danger facing the Israelites today is the danger of fatigue brought on by the long night and the sustained journey. We may lose our vigilance. We may lose our ability to stay on 24 hours of violence. Jesus said, watch. As a matter of fact, the lady who wrote the church says, the reason the virgins went off into slumber was because the second coming of Jesus was allowed to lose its force. Now, we've been around a while. I've been hanging around this planet for a while. You can tell that by the top of the head. I spent 21 years in this city, lived not too far from here. Went to Stratford High School and I remember thinking, I'll never get out of this place before Jesus comes. Well, you know I've blown the candles a few times since then. And subsequently went to college, am I going to make it? And I have to ask myself, am I on track? Have I lost my vigilance? Am I still looking earnestly for the appearing? Slumber comes because we allow the second coming to lose its force. Sociological theory says that when you reach the seventh generation of a movement from its roots, you lose contact with your roots. We're past it. We're past it. Now, we're not bound and determined by sociological theory, but sociological theory tells us something. Tells us something. We're in danger of losing the ability to wait. Behold, says Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. That's not a tickle. That's not a silent knock. That's a pounding of the door in the Hebrew. Just like in the Song of Solomon, when the lover goes to the house, there's a pounding on the door. Jesus says, let me in. The door to heaven is open, but he says, let me in. Don't just leave him in the porch. I'm going to preach again. I'm getting a little deeper now. Don't just leave him in the porch. Jesus says, I want total operation. I want total occupation. Let me into the lounge room, the dining room, the, the bedroom, the kitchen. Let me into every facet of your life. Give me full occupancy. I'm coming. I'm coming. Be ready. Don't be distracted. Stay on uh, full alert because the journey is almost over. Blessed is he 
who endures to the end. Redemption is to be completed. It's not finished yet. The Apostle Paul said, the present time, I'm quoting from a paraphrase on Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, the present time is of highest importance. It's time to wake up to reality. Every day brings God's salvation nearer. The night is nearly over. The day has almost dawned. Let us therefore fling away things that men and women do in the dark. Let us arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us live cleanly as in the daylight. Let us be Christ's men and women from head to foot and give no chances for the flesh to have its fling. So beloved, preacher, I'll preach to myself, you can listen in. Keep focused and don't be distracted. The lady who wrote to the church says there are 1,000 things which invite time and attention from which I and you must turn away. Things which are not bad, but things which are distractions. Things which cause us to miss out on those real significant priorities in life. A thousand things. Don't mistake activity for achievement. There's nothing busier than a Ferris wheel, but it ain't going anywhere. Activity is not achievement. Don't give in to tinkering with trinkets, trinkets and majoring in minors. Let's have finishing on our mind. We want to complete the journey. Let's not be distracted by theological gobbledygook or doctrinal placebos. Stand tall because he who stands for nothing will fall for anything. The church of which you and I are blessed to be members, was raised up to say to the world in the context of Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12, Jesus is coming again and do everything, church, hear me this morning, do everything against the backdrop that one day this place is going to incinerate. Whether it's business, whether it's family, whether it's recreation, whether it's menu, whether it's vacation, whether it's university, whether it's training, whether it's the farm, or it's being a tradie. Do everything against the backdrop of lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring because Jesus is coming again. Amen. The men and women of yesteryear, our models from the past, did the same. And I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk in Jerusalem, just like John. And I'm going to meet the men of the kingdom and the women of the kingdom who had finishing on their mind. Men and women like Abraham, who look for a city whose builder and maker is God. Men like Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Men like Joseph. Wow. Joseph, a teenager down in Egypt, confronted by Potiphar's wife. Read the story. She was a seducer. And you remember Joseph's response. I want, him, I want to meet a man like this. Joseph's response was, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? 
The angels trembled as they wondered what he was going to do. They held their breath. He stood tall because he bowed at the feet of the divine. I want to meet a man like that. I want to meet a man like Moses who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than endure the pleasures of sin. Notice it says the pleasures of sin only for a season. Then come the wages. He endured as seeing him who was invisible, looking ahead to his reward when the invisible would become visible. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar up there. Nebuchadnezzar, how did he get there? He was arrogant. But Nebuchadnezzar got there because God gave him a view of the kingdom. In the days of these kings shall a God of heaven set up a kingdom that will never, never be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, I want you on board for my kingdom. He's there. God had a hard time getting him there. Had to put him out on grass for seven years. First hippie. On grass. Seven years. He was arrogant. But God got him. God is good. Forty years he knocked on the heart of that magnificent ruler. He saw the vision of the Almighty. You know the message of righteousness by faith? Do you believe in that here? I didn't expect anything else but an amen from here. The message of righteousness by faith is the, lay, is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. God can never do anything for this Aussie boy until he realizes he needs help. So he put him on grass. And you remember the end of Daniel 4, he stands tall and says, I praise and extol the King of heaven because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Alan White says he was thoroughly converted. You'll meet him in glory. Hallelujah. You'll meet Samson there. I don't know how he got in. Well, I do know how he got in. He had affection infection. He was in love with his own opinions. I don't know. He must have got in just before the jumbo closed the door. Flight 777 to the New Jerusalem. Maybe. Remember me now. You remember he said as he put his arms around the columns of that temple, remember me now. I know someone else who said the same thing. Remember me when you come in your kingdom and maybe he got on board the last minute. You'll meet him there. Men and women who had victory. Rahab's there. Read the story in Hebrews 11. And I'm quoting Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not see the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers just like you, just like me, aliens and strangers on the earth. They were looking for a heavenly country, a better country, a heavenly one. God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city. And so, beloved, my message to you this morning, Jesus' message to all of us, is watch, watch, and watch. Now we see only a poor reflection of things to come, but in the kingdom... We shall see all things clearly, for we shall see the King. Let me pray. Father, this world is a crazy place.
It's crazy place. We've given ourselves over recklessly to sin. My Father, we thank you that the wonderful promise of Scripture, the promises repeated and repeated and repeated that you're going to come again and set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And the sovereignty and the kingdom and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven were given to the people of the saints of the Most High and judgment will be given in their favour. Father, we look forward to that great day and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Father, we face another new year. We wouldn't dare face it without our hand in yours and help us to keep looking and help us to do everything this year against the backdrop lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring because Jesus is coming again. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abn Australia all one word .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia, Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Jesus is coming again, coming in glory, the Lamb that was slain. 
of earth tell the vast wandering throng Jesus is coming again tempests and whirlwinds the anthem prolong Jesus is coming again coming again coming
reunited evermore who will you bring to heaven's golden shore because in heaven we'll be at peace forevermore no more crying no Just won't be the same that in there the be Jordan 
We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Soon after he posted his 95 theses in Wittenberg, Luther was summoned to appear in Rome to answer a charge of heresy. His friends were filled with dread. They knew the danger that threatened him in that city. People remembered John Huss a century before, how he had been promised a safe passage and fair treatment, but he had been burned at the stake. Elector Frederick of Saxony, one of the seven German princes, demanded that the trial be held within the boundaries of his territory. The Pope's legate was to hear the trial on his behalf. But before the trial could begin, the legate was charged to prosecute and constrain without delay and to banish, curse, and excommunicate all of whatever rank in church or state who would not seize Luther and his adherents. Here is displayed the true spirit of Luther's foes, not a trace of justice to be found. It was around this time that a dear friend of Luther would come to his aid and support, Philip Melanchthon. He was younger than Luther and was a learned scholar. His carefulness, gentleness, and exactness would serve as a complement to Luther's courage and energy. Augsburg had been set as the place of the trial, and whilst Luther was told not to attend by many of his friends who feared for his life, he was resolute about attending and made his way to Augsburg. At this point, Luther had not received an assurance of a safe passage, and his foes hoped that he would appear without one, but this he refused to do. The legate was at first very friendly in his exchanges with Luther, but he misjudged his determination and the strength of his convictions. Luther protested that he was being asked to retract without first being shown his error. Every response that he gave, he showed clearly how it could be backed up with the Bible. But the legate's response was always a heated response with the words, retract, retract. Realizing that this exchange was futile, Luther asked to present his findings in writing, which he did the next day. He gave it to the legate and he threw them aside straight away. Luther then met this proud man on his own grounds, the traditions and teachings of the church, showing how his assumptions were wrong. The trial wasn't really going anywhere though, and Luther soon retreated with his friends. They had tried to bully Luther by their threats, but this had not worked. Luther's teachings and writings were spreading across Germany like wildfire, and eventually Rome resorted to a bull of excommunication. Luther was condemned along with his adherents, and they were given 60 days to either recant or be excommunicated. Normally, this would strike fear into the heart of anyone, but not Luther. He gathered around him a group of doctors, students, and citizens of Wittenberg, and under a tree near this very spot, he publicly burned the Pope's bull of excommunication and the canon laws. Rome produced another bull of excommunication against him, declaring his final separation from Rome, saying he was a curse of heaven and condemning anyone who adhere to any of his doctrines. 
Truly, it can be said of Luther, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. While the forms of opposition to the truth change and how open they are over time, the same antagonism exists and will be manifested to God's people until the end of time. If you are being persecuted for the stands that you are holding and for the convictions that you have, I want to encourage you that no matter who you are, no matter where you are or what the situation is, stand boldly for God, stand courageously for God, no matter what the cost may be. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Alcohol, why not? If you had a dog that bit one out of every three people who came to your house, would you keep it? A significant percentage of people who use alcohol for social or recreational purposes become alcohol-dependent for part of their lives. In the U.S., about 30% of adults have had an alcohol use disorder in their life. Excessive drinking leads to 88,000 deaths a year, and it shortens the life of those who do die by an average of 30 years. Alcohol is the most commonly used addictive substance in the United States. Alcoholic beverages are legal, socially accepted, and relatively inexpensive. But are they harmless? According to a new analysis of 87 studies, the heart health and longevity benefits in all but six were seriously flawed and shaky at best, and I'm quoting. Many studies were underwritten by alcohol lobbies. The remaining studies that were of higher quality showed no benefit. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has removed language in its guidelines which suggest that light drinking could confer heart benefits for certain people. England's government guidelines now state that there is no safe level of alcohol consumption and even small amounts increase the risk for certain cancers. At levels commonly seen in social drinking, even levels deemed safe for driving, alcohol prompts a sharp increase in destructive free radical activity linked to a wide array of chronic diseases, including liver damage. Alcohol molecules are tiny and soluble in both fat and water. They easily permeate almost all parts of the body. Alcohol irritates the lining of the digestive tract and increases the risk of mouth and liver cancer, stomach ulcers, pancreatitis, and gastritis. A large-scale analysis showed that women having just three drinks a week significantly increased their risk of breast cancer. At low doses, alcohol acts as a stimulant and lessens inhibition, but it is classified as a depressant because at moderate to high doses, it actually depresses brain activity. Alcohol can damage brain tissue, even in socially acceptable amounts. Modest levels of alcohol intake can result in slowed reaction time, clouded judgment, and increased mistakes, all without the drinker recognizing his or her impairment. Perhaps that's one reason why alcohol is linked to 40% of industrial injuries and 50% of all driving fatalities. 
The brain's frontal lobes, the centers for emotions and planning, are especially susceptible to alcohol damage. Quitting alcohol helps the brain to recover, often with marked improvement in memory and learning in as little as six months. Articles on the so-called French paradox touting alcohol's heart health benefits have been widely published. However, lower death rates from heart disease in the French were linked to their low consumption of saturated fat in the past and high consumption of more healthful fats for more than 30 years, not wine consumption. Bold new guidelines released by England's chief medical officer, Sally Davies, challenged the long-held belief that drinking wine or any alcohol can cut the risk of cancer, heart disease, and memory loss. According to Dr. Robert Superco, former director of the Cholesterol, Genetics, and Heart Disease Institution in Berkeley, California, the cardiovascular benefits of alcohol have been greatly overstated. He calls heart health studies with alcohol quite biased. Add that insight to the considerable role alcohol plays in the alarming obesity epidemic in the United States, Dr. Superco says, and a highly unflattering picture of alcohol's cardiovascular effects emerges. Indeed, alcohol avoidance, along with increased physical activity and the elimination of simple sugars from the diet, ought to be at the core of any strategy to reduce the obesity problem. Alcohol is very calorie-dense. One glass of wine contains as many calories as a Snickers candy bar, about as many as are burned in a one-mile walk. Did Jesus drink alcohol? In our culture, wine means a fermented beverage. The Greek word for wine, oinos, can mean either fermented or unfermented juice. Jesus drank unfermented juice, the pure blood of the grape. Deuteronomy 32:14. He turned gallons of water into sweet, fresh, unfermented grape juice. John 2, 1-11. Such succulent beverages were highly prized among the ancients and had the blessing of God. As the new wine is found in the cluster, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. Isaiah 65, 8. The scriptures have continued warnings against alcohol, that it attacks the user with a vengeance and at the last has the death bite of a poisonous viper. Proverbs 23, 32. The Adventist Health Study has shown that a diet rich in antioxidants and dietary fiber from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and beans, plus regular exercise improves heart and immune function, lowers stress, high blood pressure, stroke, dementia, and cancer risk. It also adds years of quality life. Creating social occasions around attractive, flavorful fruits, salads, beans, vegetables, and flavorful juices or herb teas can brighten any social gathering. It creates a wholesome atmosphere for all to enjoy, safeguarding that person who might be vulnerable to addiction. If you are fighting an addiction, always work with your health care team and support group. In the meantime, grab those grapes. For optimum heart health, 
Make healthful lifestyle choices and grab those dark-colored grapes with plant compounds called polyphenols. The latest word from the grapevine is to choose the pure blood of the grape, the unfermented juice, with its blessing in the wholesome cluster. That is undoubtedly the safest, wisest, and most wholesome way to receive the health-promoting benefits of grapes. If alcohol has a hold on you, there is hope and help. Work with your health care provider. Ask God to give you power and strength, because if the sun shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.